0: festival of unleavened bread or the Passover, the same Jewish festival at which Jesus had been executed about a decade earlier. So if you take a snapshot right here at this moment after these first verses of chapter 12 of Acts, who looks like they are in control? Oh, Herod does, right? He's getting away with opposing this Jesus movement. He's killed James. He's got Peter in his sights now. He's about to execute Peter. It looks like Herod is in control. But there are a couple of mitigating factors here. First of all, we have to uh, keep in mind that Jesus had actually predicted that James would be killed for his faith. Back in in Mark chapter 10, he tells James and John that, that they will drink the same cup that he drank. They will be baptized with the same baptism that he's going to be baptized with, pointing to a martyr's death. So Jesus was uh, killed a, a martyr's death, and so James too then is killed a martyr's death. In other words, God's not surprised by this. Jesus knew that this was going to happen. But the other mitigating factor is that we get a note of hope here, even in our passage. Look at verse 5. So Peter was put in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now this note of hope transitions us into the action that's going to follow. So as we look at the rest of the chapter, we're going to see a sharp distinction between what happens to God's people and what happens to those who oppose God and his work. So let's start with what happens to God's people. Picking up in verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. Now, verse 5 gave us a hint that maybe something good was going to happen here the church is earnestly praying to god on behalf of peter and now we see that god is in fact going to work to rescue peter so so peter is under top level security here there are 16 guards making sure he is not going to escape four sets of four through the four watches of the night two of them are chained to him two are outside the door in other words there's no human means of peter escaping from this prison he, He's one of uh, herod's prized prisoners and he's not going to let him go the interesting thing is is that in the midst of the deadly seriousness of this situation james has just been killed peter's probably going to have the same fate in the midst of the deadly seriousness of the situation Luke tells the story in a way to make it entertaining and amusing. So The first uh, amusing element that we see here is that, that Peter is so soundly asleep that the angel has to hit him really hard. The word that's, that's used here for, for striking him, my translation is the angel struck him, It's a really violent word. It's not like he kind of nudged him on the shoulder and gently woke him up. This is the the word that's usually used when an angel strikes someone dead. In fact, later in our passage, that's going to happen. So the old translations have smite or smote. So the angel is wailing on Peter in order to wake him up and to get his attention. And then when Peter finally wakes up, he's so dazed that the angel has to give him a series of very small, very clear statements so that he can uh, actually obey him, get dressed and get out the door. So note that that Peter isn't contributing anything to this great rescue other than his kind of sleepy incomprehension. The other amusing thing, of course, is that Peter doesn't realize that what's happening is actually real. Maybe you've had an experience like this. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, I dropped my phone. And I had just gotten the phone. I was really frustrated. Uh, So I dropped it, and it totally shattered. It it was one of those, not just where you can kind of turn it on and kind of squint and hope it's not past the... It was totally gone. It wouldn't turn on at all. And, uh, of course, I didn't put a case on it because I don't like cases on those things. And and I'm not wise enough to get insurance for my phone. And so this was really... uh, It was not a good thing. I realized I was going to have to shell out a bunch of money to save this. So I do the only logical thing that every uh, good Christian would do. I pray to God that this was actually a dream and not real life. Knowing, of course, that it is real life. And so imagine my relief several hours later to wake up and realize that it had in fact been a dream. My phone for the moment is still in one piece and working. So this was a great thing. But, but this is how it goes in the middle of the night for us, right? Like some dreams are so vivid that we think they're real life and, and sometimes we wake up and things are so cloudy and foggy in the middle of the night that we're not sure what's real and what's a dream. Well, that's what's happening to Peter here, right? He, he's in this weird dream world where an angel comes and thumps him hard on the side and wakes him up, and then, and then the chains just fall off of his hands. I mean, this is dream world kind of stuff, and then, and then he goes past the guards, and they don't wake up, even though their life is on the line if he escapes, and then they get to this big iron gate leading to the city, and, and it turns into one of those automatic mire doors where it just automatically opens in front of him, and he walks through. I mean, it's a dreamlike world, Right? until he realizes that he's standing out there in the middle of the night in Jerusalem with no chains, free. All of this had really happened. And so Peter goes to find the church. Verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. And if you didn't think that Luke was telling this in an amusing way, now you see that, yes, he is actually telling this in an amusing way. This is where it gets even uh, funnier. I, I love this because it shows how Normal and how human the early church was—that they're they're people just like us. So so Luke had said back in verse five, the church is fervently, earnestly praying uh, on behalf of Peter, praying to God. And here we find that they're doing that. They're gathered in the middle of the night at this uh, this person's house, and they're, they're gathers the church earnestly praying for Peter. Except they think there's no chance that God's actually going to answer these prayers. So when the servant girl Rhoda says Peter's at the door, they tell her, "Listen." He's not at the door. You're out of your mind. You're insane. He couldn't possibly be out of the door. He is in Herod's prison. He's going to be killed tomorrow. And then when she insists, when it's clear that she's seen something, they say, well, the only other possible logical conclusion is that Peter's angel is there. It never crosses their mind. It doesn't occur to them that it's possible that God has just rescued Peter in a miraculous answer to prayer. So again, we note that That this great rescue isn't the result of, of human action. Humans don't contribute anything to this. It's not that the church's prayer is so fervent and so earnest and that their faith is so strong that Peter is released. It's because of God's sheer grace in choosing to intervene to rescue Peter. So it's a bit amusing and and definitely comforting to see Christians in this this mixture of prayer and doubt because I feel like we're in that all the time. Like we're, we're praying for God to act, but then we're kind of surprised if he actually shows up and does act. Well, of course, the really funny part of this story is that poor Rhoda, this servant girl, doesn't let Peter in the door. He's knocking on the gate, and she leaves him out, locked outside the gate. This is like uh, some stories I heard of hunters out in Alaska when they see this, this big bull moose, or maybe it happens here with, with a, big, uh, a big buck, and, and, and they're, they're so excited, their heart's racing, so they, they raise the rifle up to their, up to their shoulder, and they, they put a cartridge in the, in the chamber, and they, they sight it in, and they fire away. And nothing happens. Like, Man, the moose is just standing there. So they, they again, they eject the, the cartridge. They put another one in, and they fire away again. And still nothing. And so they, they do it again. They do it again. They, they unload their whole magazine on this moose. And the moose is just standing there. And the moose you kind know, of winks at him and, and shrugs its shoulders and, and moves on. And the poor, humiliated hunter is thinking, what on earth happened? What's wrong with my gun? It was, it was right there. It was so close. How could I possibly have missed and so they looked down to collect the shells from the ground and realized that those aren't shells. Those are actually live bullets. They had totally forgot to pull the trigger. They had unloaded their gun on this moot without ever actually taking a shot. They forgot to do the one thing that they needed to do. Well, it's the same thing with Rhoda. She, she forgets to do the one thing she's supposed to do. She's so excited that Peter's there that she forgets that she should probably open the gate and let him in. I mean, you can imagine the, the church telling this story about uh, poor Rhoda, and you can imagine her getting more and more embarrassed with, with each new retelling of this story as the church laughs again and again about how the prison doors open automatically for Peter, but he can't even get past the gates of his own friend's house to join the church in prayer. And, and poor Rhoda probably heard this story many more times than she would have liked. But, but again, this is, Luke is telling the story in a, in a way to show us how, how human uh, the early church was. Well, they're finally going to get this all sorted out. Verse 16, But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. So Peter gives God all the glory, explaining that this story of God's incredible rescue from an impossible situation at the last possible moment. And then Peter's gone. We actually only hear from, uh, about Peter one more time in the book of Acts, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, but we don't hear again uh, for the rest of the, of the book of Acts. We don't actually hear from, from Peter again, although we will see a couple of his letters in the New Testament. But the important thing for us to see here is that, that God protects his people. That's what he did for Peter. He, God intervened to rescue Peter. What looked like an impossible situation with Herod opposing God, killing God's people and getting away with it has turned by the miraculous intervention of God. So what we need to learn is that when all is said and done, God protects his people. This is a crucial lesson for us. When all is said and done, God protects his people. We need to hear this. Now that then uh, shows up in the big contrast from what happens to God's people and what now happens to those who oppose God. So this is the other side of that story. Verse 18, in the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter, no doubt, 16 of them, one of him, and somehow he escapes without any of them knowing. Verse 19, after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So Herod now is totally defeated. He has lost his prize prisoner despite having all of these uh, security measures taken against him. And now he doesn't have a chance of further garnering the support of the Jewish people. So he decides that he's going to leave Jerusalem and go somewhere where he might get uh, a little bit of an of a, uh, emotional boost. That's what he does. Verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea, where Jerusalem is, to Caesarea up on the coast and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So this is a better situation for Herod. He's in the the power position of this. He has the upper hand. These people need his food. He's been quarreling with them. They're now coming to uh, seek peace. In other words, they are going to kind of bow at his feet and bow to his So, So he has the upper hand here, and he's going to take full advantage of this. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Now this is an interesting story because uh, the ancient Jewish historian uh, Josephus fills in some of the other details. He, he has a parallel account of this same uh, event that happened in, in Herod's life, and he adds some um, kind of colorful details to it. It turns out that on this particular day, Herod had decided that he was going to wow the crowd. So he puts on what Josephus tells us is a rather flamboyant robe made entirely out of silver with really fine weaving. So you can picture this in your mind, bright, shiny silver robe. And, and he uh, comes up before the crowd in this, uh, this big arena here, and, and the morning sun comes up, and it just reflects brilliantly off of this a shiny silver robe of his, and, and, it, and it, it has the effect that he intended. It, it dazzles the crowd, and they, the people who are trying to butter him up say things like, oh, we used to think that you were just a human, but now we can see that you are like a god. So the effect is something like a, a disco ball, right? I thought about breaking out my, my silver sequined sport coat for this week to give you something of the effect of what this might have been like, but it was at the cleaners, so I wasn't able to do that. Um, And then it turns out that's pretty good because the story uh, takes a a twist toward the end here. And and after reading the ending I decided it wouldn't have been a good thing anyway. Verse 23. So they just said, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Verse 23. Immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. And Josephus tells the same story that Luke does here. He says, this is why Herod died. Herod was a, a mere mortal, a regular human person. He was accepting the kind of praise and accolades that are only right to give to the true God. And so God strikes him down. He judges him. This man who had arrogantly opposed God's work by killing James, by intending to kill Peter, is now judged by God. So this is what happens to those who oppose God's work. God intervenes to judge Herod. And then uh, verse 24 solidifies the contrast between what happens Uh, between God and those who love him and those who oppose him. Verse 24. So Herod had just died, but, verse 24, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So this is the difference. This is the contrast. God protects his people, and God judges those who oppose him. So what the passage is showing us in, in a truncated form is that God always wins. He gets the last word. And sometimes with a a passage like this, the whole story is nicely wrapped up together. We see the beginning, we see the end, we see what's happened, and we can see this contrast. God gets the last word. He protects His people, and He judges those who oppose Him. This is a really, really crucial truth for us to learn. Ajith Fernando puts it like this, God always has the last word. If this does not seem to be the case, it is because the last word is has not yet been said. That's a crucial truth for us to know because this is how we get past that emotional roller coaster of basing our feelings and our outlook on life on what's happening right now in front of us. If we don't catch this, we're always going to be taking snapshots of this is what's happening right now. This is what's in front of me. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. And our circumstances, we're going to be slaves to our circumstances, always tied to making conclusions based on that little snapshot in time. So we can do this on the personal level. Say, listen, I'm I'm lonely. Why am I so lonely or I'm frustrated? Well, God must not love me. He must, must not be willing to take care of me. Or we could say it on a a global level as well. We take a snapshot and say, well, look what's happening in Nigeria right now. Boko Haram, they're, they're massacring tons of people in Nigeria. God must not be powerful or he must not care. You take a snapshot and base your conclusion on that snapshot. But God does care. God does love us. And God will have the last word. A story like this is helpful because it shows the whole thing. So often we have this tiny little perspective and a little snapshot in time doesn't allow us to see the big picture of what's going on. God always has the last word. He protects his people. He judges those who oppose him. This truth is what frees us then from being a slave to our circumstances. Because if you really believe this, it changes how you live your life. It changes how you you live day to day. Here's the difference it makes. You know the end. You know that the end is going to be good because God always has the last word and his promises are good and he's faithful to his promises. It's like watching a Disney movie. Sad things happen through Disney movies, but you know that in the end, everything's going to turn out okay because it's a Disney movie it wraps up nicely. You might not know how it's going to get a good end, but you know what the end is going to be, and you know that it's good. So several years ago, I watched uh, Toy Story 3 uh, with my family, and, and uh, if you've watched the movie, you know there's this climactic scene toward the end where it's not looking good for our heroes, uh, the toys, and they are uh, heading toward this giant incinerator with all of the garbage, and, and they're fighting for their lives, scrambling together, trying to get away from harm here. And you as a viewer, of course, know, okay, this is a Disney movie. You know that this is going to end well somehow. Then there comes this point where the characters themselves give up. They stop fighting, and they link hands, and they say, well, I guess we're just going to go to our deaths together. But still, in the back of your mind, thinking, okay, well, I don't know how it's going to happen. Right now, things don't look good. The snapshot's not good at the present. But it's a Disney movie. Somehow, someone's going to come out of nowhere and save the day. that's exactly what happens some of their friends come and they save the day and they live uh, well it it has a, a happy ending in the end it's a similar kind of thing for Christians we know that the end is good because we know that God always has the last word and we have seen his promises and we know that they are good there will be someone who comes to save the day in the end and in fact we even know who that someone is that someone is Jesus God sent Jesus to, to live on the earth to show us what it means to live in obedience to him. He sent Jesus to die on a cross to wipe away the penalty of everything wrong that we have ever done in the past and everything wrong that we'll ever do in the future. God raised Jesus from death to life to show that the grave doesn't have ultimate power anymore. And God promises that Jesus will come again in the end to set all things right. So we know That God has the last word. And we've heard what that last word is. Is It it is a good, good word. So the Bible is clear on this. God wins through Jesus. So right now, we still live in the tension where some snapshots will make it look like God doesn't win, or that he's not in control, or that something is wrong. Because the truth is that there's lots of evil in the world. There is much darkness, there is much pain, there is much sorrow. So we do well to remember this was true in, in biblical times as well. So Peter is rescued from prison, but James is killed for his faith. And earlier in the book of Acts, Stephen is killed for his faith. And this is true today as well. Today there are Christians around the world who are being killed for professing the name of Jesus. And the time may come when you and I will be called to join them. But no matter what happens... God always wins. He always gets the last word, and that last word is good. Paul says, he's so confident of this, that Paul says in the, in the Second Corinthians uh, that, that whatever is happening now, it's a, it's a light and a temporary problem compared to the weight of glory to be revealed when Jesus returns. So how do we live in this tension? where there's lots of stuff that's happening that's difficult. How do we live in the tension? We make the choice to trust God, because God has shown himself to be faithful. He has shown himself to be good all through human history. We can trust him. We can trust him when he rescues us, like he did Peter. and We can trust him even when it costs us our life, like it did for James, and like it did for Stephen knowing that God can bring glory to himself even through our death. If you want to see a great example of what this looks like in action, uh, you go back to the book of Daniel and hear the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here are three uh, faithful followers of God, and and the king of their day was, was furious because he had told them to worship something that was not God as if it were God, and they refused to do it. And so he uh, orders that they are going to be executed by throwing them into this blazing hot inferno of a furnace. Their response to the king is exactly what we're talking about here. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter if we are thrown into the blazing furnace. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I mean, that's what it looks like to trust God no matter what the snapshot of today looks like. It's having such confidence in God that no matter how strong the king of the day looks, you realize that that he's just another human. He's going to be here and gone, just like every other human before him. God always has the last word, and so we can trust him. So here's what I want you to contemplate. Do you have that kind of trust in God that can say, The God that I serve is more powerful than anything that's happening on here. He will deliver me, and even if he doesn't deliver me, I'm still going to worship him because I know he's good, and I know in the end he gets the last word. Do you you have that kind of trust and confidence in God? If you you do, then then live it out because you have found the secret to a life of freedom and, and peace and hope and joy. But many of us don't have that kind of trust in God. We don't have that kind of confidence in God. What are you going to do in order to get there? What do you need? Because if you're going to be able to say what what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, then then you have to really know God. People don't say things like that. People don't live that out until they really know God. They know that what we see encapsulated in that, that story in Acts 12 is actually true, that God protects his people. That God judges those who oppose him and that that God always has the last word. That They've seen that this is true because they know God. If we're going to live like this, we have to know God. I mean, that's really the the action step for you. If you don't have this confidence, if you don't have this trust in God, you have to know God better. You have to come to know him. And, And God makes himself known in all sorts of ways. He makes himself known to those who have eyes to see it through creation, the intricacies of his design. He makes himself known through other people that he has uh, shown himself to. This is what I've seen is true of God. This is what I know is true of him. He makes himself known through prayer as we talk to him, as we bring our requests before him. And perhaps most importantly, he makes himself known through scripture, through his word. This is God's revelation to us that we may know him truly and that we may know him accurately, that we may know him well so that we can chart our whole lives on this foundation. So if you want to know that God is really trustworthy, if you want to know who he is, then, then you've got to read the Bible and find out what it actually says about him. And next week, we're actually going to kick off a 40-day uh, scripture challenge where we'll have a little bookmark uh, in the bulletin for you to take away. And this is for the 40 days uh, leading up to our celebration of Easter plus Sundays. So 40 days plus Sundays leading up to Easter. And, and, and some of you, you read the Bible every day. You're, you're in the Word. You know that, that God feeds you through his word. But, but some of us, we're, we're just not as good at that. Maybe we're new believers and we're just coming back to church. What I want to have happen, I want to give you an opportunity to get into the Bible and explore who God really is and to find out that he really is the one that you can trust no matter what's happening. So watch for those little uh, bookmarks coming next week. We'll be uh, doing that as a church, kind of coming back to our, our roots of, of valuing Scripture and having Scripture be the, the functional authority over us. As, as Travis read this morning, God's Word is living, it's active, it is breathed out by God for the good of His people. So uh, that's a, watch for that next week. As we look at the, uh, the, um, the wrap-up, the conclusion then of Acts 12, we've got to see the message that's going on here. I want you to see above everything else that God makes things right. He takes care of his people. He, he judges those who oppose him. No one will get away with anything. God offers forgiveness through his son Jesus. and He has, always has the last word. And what that means is that we can trust him no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what's going on in the world around us. We're able to put our lives into His hands, knowing that He is good, knowing that He gets the last word. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, please pray with me. God, for those who are questioning Your goodness, for those who are questioning Your providence, For those who are in difficult times right now where it really does not look like you are working, I pray that you would give them eyes to see that you are a good God and you are a faithful God. I pray that you'd bring us back to what we know is true of you, that you have promised to make all things right, that you will send Jesus again to make all things right. I pray now that you would use this meal, use the Lord's Supper as a reminder of the core truths, the foundations that, that you sent Jesus to remove the penalty of our sins, that you sent him to forgive us, to reconcile us to you. And out of that foundational truth, give us increasing hope and trust in what you will do today and into the future. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.